to week four of our series from the book of James called How Faith Works. Today, we are finishing up the second half of chapter two. It's verses 14 through 26. Let me go ahead and read it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is God's word. I think the wisest thing to do on the front end of this passage is just get to the the elephant in the room as quickly as possible. The elephant being that this passage in James sounds completely antithetical to the message of the gospel, at least at face value. The message of the gospel, of course, is is the message that makes Christianity unique. It's the central message of Christianity. It's this idea that Jesus Christ has done absolutely everything to make you and I right with God so that his healing presence can come into our lives and one day heal us in this whole world uh, completely free from the corrupting power of sin and that salvation can be ours the moment that we stop trying to earn it and trust in what he has done for us. That message is perfectly summarized by something Paul wrote in Romans 3.28 where he said, For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Seemingly in the face of that, James says here in verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That obviously sounds like a complete contradiction to Paul, and historically some people have come to that conclusion So I wanted to address that before we get into it. First off, I would just ask you to consider that when people started originally compiling the canon of Scripture at the end of the first century when the apostles started dying off, they saw no problem putting the writings of Paul and James alongside each other. Meaning, it's not as though they read what Paul had to say and said, that sounds good, put it in there, and then read what James had to say and said, oh my goodness, one of these has to go. We're going to look like idiots if we put both of those in there. I'm so glad somebody caught this. They saw no contradiction. They actually saw complete harmony between what James is saying about our salvation, what the rest of of Scripture, specifically Paul, has to say about our salvation. And the reason for that is because they understood why each author was writing. I feel like I've said this in some way, shape, or form before each week of this series, but let me just be as explicit as I can now because I think it's more important to to state this now than it has been before, that James, unlike a lot of other New Testament authors, specifically Paul, does not explain the gospel. He assumes the gospel. So compare that to Paul. We actually just did one of Paul's letters this summer, Ephesians. In pretty much all of Paul's writings in the New Testament, he burns a lot of calories explaining what the gospel is, what the gospel means, how the gospel works, how it brings you into a right relationship with God and has the power to transform you all throughout your life. 
Uh, James was writing to a, a much different audience and, and obviously was a much different person. And so James, instead of spending any time explaining the gospel, he instead assumes the gospel. And his intent is to write to tell you and I what a life will look like if an individual has really believed and built their life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here, when he says that uh, a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's not saying that faith in Jesus Christ is not enough to save you. What he's saying is that if someone has legitimately put their faith in Jesus Christ, that person's life will always produce certain evidence. And if the faith that an individual claims in Jesus does not produce this evidence, then like a body without vital signs, James would say, your faith is dead. And so here's obviously the million-dollar question. How do you know if your faith is alive or dead? That's the question that James answers in this passage, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to a teaching called, How to Know if Your Faith is Alive. My counsel on the front end of our time together is to go ahead and get those seat backs and tray tables in their full upright and locked position. Because as James normally does, he refuses to pull punches here. This is a, a passage of scripture that is designed to get you and I to take a very deep, long, sobering look at ourselves and the life that we're living. Uh, so what I want to do is kind of break this passage into halves. On the front end, we're going to talk about two signs that James says are insufficient and do not prove that your faith is alive. And then on the back end of our time together, we'll look at two signs that James says proves that it is. <clears throat> So first off, let's take a look at verse 19, where James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. <clears throat> what you have in verse 19 is two things that it is possible to have in your life that might look a lot like genuine faith, um, but according to James, if, if they are all you have, then they are not enough. The first thing that James points out here is sound doctrine. What he's saying is you believe that God is one. That comes from a statement that God himself made to the nation of Israel in the Torah. James is, is saying, that's great, you believe that God is one, so do the demons. And his point here is that demons have all of the right beliefs about God. Demons know all about who God the Father is, all about who the Holy Spirit is. They understand the mystery of the Trinity better than we do. And just out of curiosity this week, I actually went back through some of Jesus' specific episodes with demons in the gospel accounts and the Gospels actually record that when Jesus interacted with demons during his time here, the demons were the first to acknowledge the deity of Jesus Christ. Even before his own followers understood who he was, the demons knew exactly who he was. And so what, what you could pull from James's idea here is that demons understand pretty much all there is to understand about God. They know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus accomplished on the cross. They know that salvation can only be ours by grace through faith in him. They know that mankind couldn't save himself. This is a really strange thing to think about, but, but when you really boil it down, a demon could sign the statement of faith at any Orthodox church, including ours. They know all of that stuff. They know everything. They have great doctrine. They believe, says James, but his point here is that just having accurate information about God, if that's all you have, that by itself doesn't do anything, it doesn't qualify you to be anything more than a demon. Strange thing to hear, I'm aware, but James said it, not me. Second, the second thing James says you can have that might look like faith, but is not living faith, not only sound doctrine, but he goes a step further than this, and he talks about you can have a fear-based response. And the reason we see that is because James says not only do these demons have all kinds of accurate information about God, he says that their knowledge of God actually causes them to shudder. 
this one was, was um, unsettling to me. I looked up the, the, uh, the Greek word for this meaning that's translated shudder here. It literally means to stand up straight because you've been struck with extreme fear. So just think about this. If you shudder, if you have anybody in your life that you shudder at the thought of, or maybe you shudder in the presence of, then at the very least, what's clear is that you do not take that person lightly. You actually take them incredibly seriously. And in a very profound way, that individual, whoever that individual is that causes you to, sh to shudder, they've altered your life. So I, I just ask you to consider this. For, for James here to say that demons shudder at the knowledge of God, at their knowledge of God, at their understanding of who God is, and I, I guess, I don't know, I hadn't really thought a lot about how demons relate to God, but from what James is saying here, this means that not only do demons not take God lightly, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that demons take God more seriously than we do. Demons, uh, according to James's words here, they respect God's greatness, they respect his power, they respect his wrath, they respect his judgment, his punishment, and, and in their own strange way, they move about basing their lives off of what they know God is capable of. So what, what's the implication that we can pull from this? And, you know, spoiler alert, I don't like this implication, but here's what James is trying to get us to see that it's entirely possible to, for someone to move through life with absolutely incredible and accurate knowledge about who God is, with perfect doctrine about who God is. And it's entirely possible for a person with accurate knowledge of God to actually have a great, deep fear of that God, fear of his wrath, fear of his punishment, fear of what he's capable of, to the point that it actually causes them to alter their behavior Maybe they become a really moral person, a very religious person, someone who works strenuously to keep all the rules just in case that God might get them at the end of their life, which is basically what they're doing is they have trying to basically create a, a cosmic fire insurance policy. But what James is saying here is that all that is, all that surface level behavioral change that's birthed from, from just a terror of God, James says that's just shuddering. And that basically functionally is no different than the relationship that a demon has with God. Now, it might sound like James is being, you know, whatever it sounds like to you, but to me, this, this caused a, a, it was like a light bulb moment for me. Because when I thought about what James is saying here, it suddenly became clear why, in John chapter 8, Jesus looked the Pharisees in the eye and he said, your father is the devil. Very famous episode from Jesus' life. It's recorded in John chapter 8. And in all my life, I've always, you know, I've wondered how that exchange sounded. You know, I, I couldn't imagine that it was, you know, friendly or, or, I don't know, how do you tell somebody that their father's the devil in a kind way? But after reading James's words here, you know, because these are birthed from a pastor's heart. He just wants people to come to know Jesus like he did. After reading James's words here, I'm convinced that when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, your father is the devil, I, Jesus, I, I really don't believe he was shouting at them or screaming at them or trying to wound them or shame them or, or anything like that. I think that Jesus was genuinely trying to get them to see themselves and their lives for what they actually were, and he was trying to get them to understand what James is trying to get us to understand here, that it is, it's entirely possible to just basically be terrified of the idea of God's judgment, so terrified to the point that you just stack a bunch of moral behavior on top of your life, rule-keeping, law-keeping, all of that stuff, when underneath that, your relationship to God is functionally no different than that of a demon. 
Now, just to be crystal clear what I'm saying here, is there anything wrong with trying to amass as, as, as much knowledge about God as you can? Of course not. If you love somebody, you should try to get to know them as best you can. And, and you know, I'd go further than that. Is there anything wrong with having a healthy fear of the wrath of God, the judgment of God, you know, the, the, the concept of, of the fact that we're all going to one day stand before God? Is there anything wrong with that generating a healthy fear in us and even altering the way that we live in light of that fear? No, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not James's point here. James's point here is that there's nothing bad with those things in and of themselves. He's simply saying, if that's all you have, then what you have is not enough. You have what James says is dead faith. I just want to point this out one more time. This is the feeling in a room that the book of James creates. So here's the question. And I mean, that's, we could spend a lot of time working through the implications of just verse 19. Obviously, it's sobering. It should cause us to reflect. But then, of course, raises the question, okay, well, if that's what dead faith is, if that's what real faith is not, then how, how can I know whether or not the faith that I have is a living faith? What does that faith actually look like? And from here, I want to point out two answers found in this passage. The first answer is found in a case study James lays out for us in verses 14 through 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. In light of that case study, let me just lay out a principle to you. It's going to be the first of two big ideas today. Number one, living faith produces one-way love. Living faith produces one-way love. What James is doing in these verses is he's pointing out in a negative way how inconsistent it would be to call yourself a follower of Jesus and then to treat a person in great need with the kind of callous indifference that the person in this hypothetical scenario does. This is actually, if you were here with us last week, this is one of the main themes of this whole section in the book of James. It's how a genuine follower of Jesus should view and treat the poor. Now, when I first read this, you know, the, the first thought that came to my mind is that James is basically saying that one of the ways you can know your faith is genuine is that you help the poor, which there's, there's obviously a problem with that idea. Namely, it's entirely possible to help the poor and not be a Christian. Plenty of people who have done incredible work in the field of th philanthropy actually don't believe in the existence of God at all. So that can't be what James means. But then I started really thinking about the person that James is describing here. Let, let me just ask you to turn your attention to it. You notice James does not just call this person poor. He says this is a person who has not only no food but no clothes. Now, obviously, James is describing someone who's poor. I, I just want to point out to you, he's describing someone who's more than just poor. Because there's a whole lot of people in this world today that would classify as poor, as below the poverty line, that are doing a whole lot better than the person James describes here. When James says this person has no clothes and no food, he's describing a person that literally has nothing. And their problems go beyond just material and physical and financial. It takes a lot of things to go wrong to get somebody to the point that they're at in this scenario. So, so why is that significant? Here's why. James is talking about a person who has the ability to do nothing other than cost you. 
If you were to move, especially in James culture, in the Roman Empire, shame and honor culture, if you were to move towards someone like this with the intent of helping them, that's going to cost you socially. That's not going to look good in the eyes of other people. You know, to, to figure out how they got to the place that they were in, let alone start helping them out of that place, it's going to cost you a whole lot of time. There's no quick fixes for somebody in this kind of place in life. And then obviously along with that, it will cost you financially and practically to help them. The point is, this person does not have the power to benefit you in any way. All they have the power to do is cost you. And James's point here is the first way you can know that the faith you claim in Jesus is real is that you have the ability to love in a consistent way even people like that. Because living faith produces one-way love. See, lots of people can demonstrate what looks like love, but at the end of the day, that love is transactional. Any human heart can generate transactional love. That's a love that we aim at somebody so long as we get some kickback eventually. Even if they never physically pay us back, at least they help us feel good about ourselves or look good in the eyes of people. The human heart can sustain that kind of love all day long. That's not what James is talking about here. A one-way love a one-way love that does not depend on the response or the reaction of the recipient of that love is impossible for the human heart to generate apart from the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit of God. And what James is saying here is, is so in line with something Jesus said in Matthew 25 regarding sheep and goats. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but in Matthew 25, Jesus said that on the last day, on judgment day, people will be divided into sheep and goats. Sheep will be on his right Goats will be on his left, and to the sheep, who in this uh, kind of parable that Jesus was telling, obviously they're his people, and Jesus said, to the sheep, they're going to be welcomed into a kingdom that has been prepared for them. And then Jesus explains why the sheep get to come in. He says, the thing that determined that the sheep were who the sheep were, the thing that proved that the sheep were his people, what it all boils down to, read Matthew 25 this week, is it was proven in how they treated six kinds of people in this life. And then Jesus lists them. The hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. What Jesus said he's going to say to those people on judgment day, to his people on judgment day, he's going to say, you're sheep and you get to enter into my rest. And the thing that proved that you really are my sheep is how you treated these six kinds of people in your life. And again, so much in line with what James is saying here, what those six groups of people had in common that Jesus is referencing in Matthew 25 is, is, is the one thing that unites them is that all six of those people are completely defined by their needs. The only thing that those people can offer you, especially in Jesus' day, was their needs. They don't benefit you in any way. All they have the power to do is cost you. And Jesus said, what ultimately will prove that you're one of his people is how you treat one of those people. And let me ask the question that I like to ask a lot, why? And I'll just tell you, if you're not sure what a Christian's posture should be toward the poor or what a local church's you know, interaction should be with the poor, I would just encourage you this week, do a word study of how many times that word shows up in the Bible. It shows up over 2,000 times. It is remarkable how much God had to say about how the people who claim to be his people should view and interact with the poor. But why is that? Why is that? It makes perfect sense if you think about it for any length of time because... To become a Christian, I want you to really think about this, and this answer might surprise you, but to become a Christian really requires just one thing. And you might think I'm about to say faith or trust or belief or something like that, but even underneath that, becoming a Christian requires something more fundamental than any of those. It requires need. 
I love the way that, that a pastor named Tim Keller put it. He said, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. And that is a remarkably different starting point than any other belief system. You compare Christianity to any other belief system, and all the other ones will tell you that you need either wisdom or courage or strength or morality or willpower or discipline or something. But in the face of all of that, Christianity says, no, you don't. The only thing that you need is an awareness of your need. And so what the, what the Bible is teaching us is that the, the way that you tiptoe, the way that you even cross the threshold into a relationship with God is basically by admitting before God that you are all six of those groups of people that Jesus talked about in Matthew 25. To become a Christian requires you and I to admit that we are hungry and in need of nourishment. We are thirsty and in need of refreshment. We are a stranger in need of companionship. We are sick and in need of healing. We are naked and in need of clothing. We are imprisoned and in need of freedom. When we acknowledge that need and we take that need to Jesus, trusting him to meet that need for us, then according to the Bible, congratulations, you're on the team. You've just become a Christian. So you, you think about that for any length of time and you realize the reason then that James makes such a big deal about our posture toward the poor as well as Jesus as well as other 2,000 places in the Bible, the reason that over and over Scripture drives at this idea that, that loving and serving and caring for needy people is such a hallmark of God's people is because, according to the Bible, when you see people in great need, at least a part of you should see yourself. Now, I want to be real clear here. I'm not saying that unless you're constantly weeping over the plight of the poor that you should question your salvation. That's unbiblical, and it's actually a weird form of works-based righteousness. But according to, to James, to Jesus, to the entire canon of Scripture, our posture toward those who are in great need, those who have made a mess of their own lives by their own two hands, our posture toward them is a great barometer that will reveal how much we really understand the grace that's been poured out to us. Because we might say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, hallelujah, but if in our hearts our attitude toward those in need is one of scorn or indifference or anger or condescension, then what James would say the reason for that is because regardless of what we tell other people, at least a part of us still believes that we got ourselves together by our own effort and we expect other people to do the same. In the face of that, a Christian, according to the Bible, a Christian who really understands what happens to them is a Christian who understands that I bankrupted myself spiritually before a holy God. I was more destitute spiritually than any human being could ever be physically or practically. And when God came and found me, the only thing I had to offer him was my need. He stood to benefit from me in no way, shape, or form. Yet despite how earnestly I had worked to ruin my own life, I am who I am because God demonstrated a radical, life-changing, one-way love toward me. And because Christians understand that, because they've been moved by that, because they've been transformed by that, Scripture says that Christians have the ability and they grow in the ability to demonstrate that same kind of one-way unconditional love to others. And believe it or not, this is one of the first things that the, the first followers of Jesus were known for. I'm not checking my text messages right now. I just screenshotted this and wanted to read this to you. This is a quote from Julian, who was a Roman emperor who sat on the throne from 355 to 363. He was a pagan emperor. He hated Christianity, and he wanted to see it stamped out. But when he surveyed the Roman Empire... He noticed that Christianity, despite it had every reason to fail, it was always being beat up and persecuted, it wasn't going anywhere, 
and he wanted to know why that was, this is what he boiled it down to. He said, nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. He went on and said, while Jews take care of their own and pagans, who he was, take care of nobody, he said, the impious Galileans, that was a slur he came up with for Christians, he said, those impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. begs the question, what on earth, what on earth would drive these followers of Jesus who were persecuted in ways we can't imagine by those pagan citizens of the Roman Empire, what would, what would possess them to bankrupt themselves in order to elevate and, and love and serve and practice generosity to those who were their enemies and lived as their enemies? The, and the only, the only answer that makes any sense is they understood that's exactly what Jesus Christ had done for them. So first off, James is First point here, first point I wanted to offer to you is that living faith, a faith that is alive in Jesus Christ, produces one-way love. That's the first sign. Now we turn to the second, and it'll be the final sign. Verses 20 through 26. We actually read two case studies. I'll read them both to you. James said, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works his faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works, is dead. So the first time that I taught through the book of James was actually eight years ago. It was uh, the first book study that I did when I assumed this role at this church. And so this week, I looked back at how I handled this, this passage eight years ago. And what I did then is I, um, I broke Abraham and Rahab's stories into two separate points, kind of thinking that James was talking about two different aspects of living faith. And while I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to approach this text, you know, eight years later, I don't, I don't read it that way. I don't think that James's point here uh, is, is to bring up these specific moments in Abraham and Rahab's lives so that, you know, like a bunch of biblical detectives, we can try to unearth the secret of living faith in both of their lives and put it together and understand what he's saying. What I know about James after just these four weeks, and you've seen the same thing, he's a remarkably practical thinker and leader and pastor And so I think his point's a lot simpler than that. I think all James is is doing is he's highlighting the same thing that was present in in the lives of both of these people who on paper could not have been any more different. One's a patriarch of God's people. One's a prostitute living in a city that stood against God's people. I think what James is doing in his point here is he's just highlighting the same thing that was present in both of their lives. And the point that I see him highlighting here is going to be the last idea during our time together. It's number two, that living faith trusts that God is enough. And actually, the only reason that living faith can produce one-way love is because it trusts that God is enough. So assuming that not everybody read the story of Abraham and Rahab on the drive-in this morning, let me go ahead and just real quick refresher course. If you know the story of Abraham... You know that when God originally spoke to him in Genesis chapter 12, he made Abraham a promise that consisted of four parts. He said, first off, that he would make Abraham into a great nation, 
Big deal for a 75-year-old man that had no children. He said that he would bless Abraham, that he would make Abraham's name great, and that he would bless the entire earth through Abraham. Now, what that was at its core, that was the promise of significance and purpose and meaning in life, the likes of which Abraham would have never dared to dream of, again, as a 75-year-old man with no children. But of course, uh, the point is that Isaac, this promised child, was the key to all of that. If anything were to happen to Isaac, well, then that promise and this life that Abraham had kind of dreamed ahead of him, all of that was forfeit. It was lost. It was gone. Rahab, if you're unfamiliar with her story, she was a Canaanite woman working as a prostitute, like James says here, uh, in the ancient city of Jericho, which was, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but it was the most technologically advanced city in the world at the time. Jericho had an impregnable defense. It was these impossibly high walls that no army in that day uh, could, stand defend, uh, could stand against. It was, if not, uh, if not the, the, the most technologically advanced city in the ancient world, at least it was in the ancient Near East. But again, the point is for Rahab that if anything were to happen to the walls of the city of Jericho, or God forbid, to the city of Jericho itself, then much like Abraham, as far as Rahab was concerned, her life was over. And so the point is that when Abraham was presented with the choice to sacrifice his son Isaac that he waited 25 years to meet, and when Rahab was presented with the choice to turn her back on her city and shelter those Israelite spies, all variables aside, the essence of the situation that they were both put in was the same because what they both knew was that if they chose to follow God, to side with God, to obey the God of the Bible that for all intents and purposes they didn't really know a whole lot about, what they both knew is whatever else happened, their lives as they knew them were over. Because like we said, if anything happened to Isaac, Abraham's life is over, and if anything happened to Jericho, so was Rahab's. However, like James points out here, when it came down to it, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son, and Rahab was willing to walk away from Jericho. And so what their actions both proved, and I really believe this is the point that James is trying to get us to take away here, is that what their actions both proved is that they believed whatever, whatever twists and turns their lives take, is that at the end of the day, God would provide for them. God would sustain them. God would shelter them. That even if something happened to Isaac, Abraham believed God would be his significance. And even if something happened to Jericho, Rahab believed God would be her security. And so at the end of the day, they both believed that somehow, some way, God himself would be enough. I just want to offer this to you. That is the fundamental difference between a living faith and a dead faith. Dead faith can take all kinds of, 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 it can manifest itself in all kinds of different ways. But what de- all, all manifestations of dead faith have in common is that they all see God as simply a means to an end. They obey God, they serve God, they follow God, so long as they can get the thing that they really want more than God. And so whatever that thing is, that's your real God. That's your real Savior. That's your real hope. Living faith stops viewing God as a means to an end and instead sees God as the end. Last Saturday, so eight, eight days ago, my buddy John called me up. His car had been giving him some, some trouble. Uh, he took it into the shop, and they wound up having to replace his rotors, and so they kept it a few days. And so they called him up on Saturday, and they said uh, it was ready for him to, um, to pick up. And so he called me. He said, hey, man, I know it's a long shot. You got all them kids, but is there any way you could pick me up and take me over to the shop to get my vehicle? And Katie and I were both home at the time. And I was actually downstairs on the couch 
uh, watching cartoons with Everett, and it's kind of neat because he's right now watching a cartoon that I watched when I was a kid, so neat little father-son time there. And so I checked with Katie, and she said it was fine, and so I said, hey, Everett, I'm going to go pick up Uncle John. Uh, Do you want to come with me? Assuming that, of course, he wouldn't, because I remember how much I loved that cartoon when I was a kid, so I was, you know, prepared for the sting of rejection. But much to my surprise, Everett said, sure, Dad, I'll come with you. Let me grab my shoes. So we got out on the Jeep. We got on 170, and it really did mean a lot to me that he came, he came with me. And so I turned the radio down, and I said, hey, Everett, thanks for coming with me, buddy. It means a lot to me. I didn't think you were going to come. This is exactly what Everett said in response to this. And I said the same thing to the 9 a.m., but let me really point this out. I would never fabricate a story because it's cute or illustrates a theological point. So just to let you in here, I asked Everett yesterday four times to tell me exactly what he said in the car, just to make sure that I remembered it correctly. What I'm about to share with you is an exact quote from my eight-year-old son, Everett. Everybody on the edge of their seats now? Let me, let me rewind the tape for a second. I said, Everett, thank you so much for coming with me. I, I, th- I didn't think you were going to. Here's exactly what he said back. He said, why would I miss the chance to go somewhere with my dad. I've been thinking about that for eight days. And what is so moving about that little interaction there is Everett did not know exactly where we were going. He did not know exactly what we were doing. He did not know exactly how long it would take. But he didn't care. He just wanted to be with his dad. My point is, that's what living faith sounds like. When Abraham walked up Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, and when Rahab walked away from the city of Jericho, what they were both saying in their hearts, what they were both saying in their hearts, is, God, I don't know exactly what you're doing or where you're going. I don't know where this is going to take me or what this is going to cost me. But at the end of the day, I don't really need to know as long as I'm with you. That's what real faith is all about. It's about getting to this point in your life where you just kind of flip a switch and you no longer need to know exactly where you're going or how long it's going to take or what twists and turns you're likely to experience along the way. It's about simply hopping in the car, trusting the one who's behind the wheel, believing that even if you lose everything along the way, as long as you still have him, you have everything you need because he is enough. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close down today in communion. And if you haven't been with us for a communion service, the way that it works, Sarah's going to lead us in one final song. During that song, you're welcome to approach the table, take the bread and the juice, and just take some time between you and God. And then we'll take communion together when I come back up here after the song's over. But while we prepare ourselves for that, let me just leave you with this thought. If you're like me, then, then you hear all of this and you think, I'd love to have a faith like James describes here. I'd love to have a faith that produces a one-way, inexhaustible love for people, regardless of their response to it. I'd love to have uh, a living faith that is just willing to lay anything down or walk away from anything for the sake of God, but the truth is my faith pales in comparison to that. So how can we grow in this faith? And this is where I I think the stories of Abraham and Rahab and really all of our brothers and sisters in in the Old Testament get even more amazing to me. It is an incredible thing that Abraham and Rahab had the faith that they had, that they demonstrated the faith that they demonstrated because compared to them, we know so much more, I mean almost infinitely more about God than they did. 
And we look back on their stories and we derive inspiration from the fact that they were willing to lay their lives down for God. But living on this side of Calvary, we knew something that they would have never dared to dream, which is that God himself was willing to lay his life down for us. And that ultimately is the fuel that causes this faith to grow in your and my life. You can listen to a message like this and just sort of beat on your will and say, have faith, have faith. It's just not the way that it works. You can't change from the outside in like that. The only way to grow in a faith that lays our lives down for God is to see him laying his life down for us. And I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Abraham, but there's this beautiful moment at the end where he and God have this exchange where Abraham, after walking up Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, you imagine what that journey was like. At the top of that mountain, he fastens his son to the altar. He raises his knife in the air. He's ready to do the unthinkable. And right then and there, like God so often does, he, he, he steps in at zero hour. He interrupts and he says, stop. And he spares Isaac by providing a ram as a substitute in Isaac's place. And then God said to Abraham, he said, now I know that you love me, which is all God's after not obligatory obedience to, to commands and rules and regulations. It's, he wants us to love him. And God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. What Abraham would have never guessed is that thousands of years later, God himself would walk up a mount with his own son. We call it Mount Calvary. Only when Jesus got to the top of that mount, there was no substitute provided for him because he was the substitute provided for us. And now, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us at Calvary, every single one of us can come before God and say, God, despite what I feel, despite where I am in life, despite how things have not gone the way that I, I would have chosen for myself, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. And if you want to grow in the living faith that James describes here, the best advice I can give you, just go back to the cross. See God giving up his own son for you. See Jesus giving up his own life for you. Because when you and I see him being willing to lay down his own life for us, we'll grow in the ability to lay down our lives for him. That's what we remember in communion. That's it. That's all. Let's take communion.